0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay, And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 179. Ooh. Ooh. No. Eight. Eight. Well done. 178.
1: To be fair, we've been sort of planning 178, 179, 180, sort of respectively. Yeah. Yeah, because you're going on a trip soon, Zeke. I am, yes.
0: Right. right, yeah. Oh, that's why I'm so confused. I thought we were doing the 1940s this week. We're doing the 1950s. I
1: know. Don't get your films mixed up. Yeah, it could be a really confused conversation <laughs> if we start talking about the wrong film. <laughs> well, speaking of the
0: film of the week, mm. Jake, do we have some trivia?
1: We do. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do. I see you do. So, you did uh, before me, so.
2: Oh, you up me to do really my first. Into-
1: I can go oh, first. you can go first, yeah. Oh, let's mix it up. I wasn't suggesting that, but but go ahead.
0: <laughs> 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 so obviously, uh, this film, North by Northwest. Yes, um, I've heard of it directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The screenwriter for it uh, was Ernest Lehman, who was a pretty accomplished writer at the time. Um, He actually took, and this is kind of interesting because it sort of has that meta-narrative side, he actually took a two-week research trip through New York City, the United Nations, Glen Clove, Long Island, uh, uh, and 20th Century Limited, Chicago. Mm. Um, Basically just went to all of the locations that our... um,
1: our protagonist goes Our to. Our protagonist goes to, yeah.
0: um, to sort of get this immersive. And you can kind of see that it was not necessarily, uh, it was a trip that was allowing him to basically assemble what is really this film, which is not a traditional three-act structure. It's more a, a, a collection of different locations and scenes
2: oh, and things okay.
1: happening. Oh, I think I there's definitely a three-act structure in there. But um, I agree in terms of the... Uh, Sort of the locations, it does almost feel sort of oh, we're here, whoop, now we're over here. It's a bit mm. whiplashy in that sense. I, I see that. A bit Bond-esque, but yeah, I'm sure yeah. we'll talk about that. Oh, we're definitely going to mention Bond at some point. Um, what about you, Jake? He wasn't Which around at the time. I, I have fun facts. I, yeah. I, I'll share one with you, Zeke. Okay. You shared one, I'll share one. But if you share another, I don't have any other. Oh. One's pre-planned <laughs> ahead, so <laughs> don't get too excited. No, but back in the day, in 19... 19- this was actually tied for the sixth highest grossing film of all time, well, of all time, Jesus Christ, of the year. Don't don't get ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the film it was tied with was with none other than Anatomy of a Murder, which was the film this was up against in our Countdown for the Decades poll. There you I know. had absolutely no idea, and <laughs> so that's a complete coincidence.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's fair
1: to say, mm.
0: I think it would be a fair assumption to yep. assume that this film is on the poster behind me in the 1100 films to watch.
1: Mm, It most certainly is. Yes. Would you put it on your... I think I would. Absolutely. I mean, I I definitely... There's other Hitchcock films I very much admire and respect and, and probably like more than North by Northwest, but I think North by... Northwest does a lot right, and I think it really fits into a very specific category that off the top of my head I think someone like Kubrick has also made a film that fits this category, but we can elaborate... A little later in the show, would you put it on your list, Zeke? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's, it's it's sort of a breath of fresh air to kind of do a really mm. um, wildly entertaining film. I, I, to be, I'll admit, um, my Hitchcock, my Hitchcock catalog is not huge. I have sure. only watched Psycho and and Rear Window.
1: We did Rear um, Window on the fifties. Yeah, year? the last year. So there you go. A little Other, bit of continuity there.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, I can say I've only really ever seen those two films to completion. I've seen part of The Birds.
1: I wanted to watch The Birds in the last week, but it just ran out of time. So um, maybe for the next show. There's
0: a lot to like about this film, and Mm. we'll sort of dive into it. But I think stylistically, this film's a lot of fun. It clearly has created a resonance with uh, other films akin to its genre, including to what we'll talk about with James Bond. But Mm. just just the adventure... The Americana adventure, mm. um, sort of subgenre, which is you know, like your national treasures and stuff. Which actually,
1: <laughs> that's I actually like that comparison a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's
0: not a bad comparison. I know. Um, no. I think there's stylism. There's a lot more stylistically going on with this film. Sure. There's some really yeah. clever, fantastic uh, cinematography, which mm. we'll, we'll touch on. But yeah, I would 100% uh, put this on my my watch list definitely for Beautiful. the 50s especially like that decade quite yeah a choice.
1: Yeah. So. yeah especially on the tail end of it like 59 like going into the 60s but no i agree definitely and, you know i like to when we pick our films to go up against each other in the poll i like to pick films that very much represent the decade that they're from and i think this one absolutely hits the nail yeah. on the head
0: i think this really shows this film especially when we you know we'll dive into it a little bit more but Show, it shows the diversity of this director and what he mm. can do. And at his peak, why he was so renowned and still is renowned. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in the second half of the show. Before we jump into that, Jake, mm. have you yeah. caught anything in the last week?
1: I caught quite a lot, actually. Mm. I'll start... Well, there's two things. I could start with one, I could start with the other. I've caught up on a lot of TV. Yep. I think... You know, I'll get into that soon, because I've got a lot of TV discussion. I know you're going to be able to jump in on quite a lot of that, actually, as well. I yes. You've started stuff that I've that I've been wrapping up. Actually, I don't know if you wrapped it up either, but um, we'll get into that soon. I want to talk first about a stage play production that I saw. Now, a bit different. A bit different. One of, the, one of the most important films, I would say, in this podcast is like history. It won our very first Golden Chock Top, of course. It was John Carney's Once. 2007 film which we we've heard has had musicals based on it come mm-hmm. out um we discovered it very recently that oh my god there's actually a once musical in perth that's playing right now and uh gotta thank me mum who uh bought me and kirsty tickets to go see this the closing night mm. so i caught it last night and um i was telling you in the car on the way here just it was it was immaculate it was really fantastic and as like an adaption or i should say adaptation I guess it's the same thing really um they've added like a lot of elements to it where one of the things we love about the film is is that it's very much focused on guy and girl you know they don't have names it's very Mm -hmm. much this story about them too and you know as i've called it sort of this musical emotional affair of theirs Mm -hmm. um that does sort of wrap up with them going back to their own respective lives but much more enriched and reinvigorated in their yeah. love for music, I guess. Um, it's still that at its core, but what it's done is it's turned it from a mo- motivated musical where they sort of explain why the music exists. Where oh, they need to sing this song, so they're going to walk to a music store and they're going to, um, you know, they can't just sing spontaneously. They kind of have to teach each other quickly, like how to play it and hear some music. Like they they motivate it. Yeah, and this is much more of a traditional or traditional musical where. Um, every single character is a character where it's like the music store owner and the banker and and, um, even his father they have their own like little sons involved um, and girls, family all have wider sons as well so there's there's a lot more energy going into that but I think it totally works in the fact that the thing they're also expanding on is the music itself and we're used to, you know a lot of it's just um, you know, Glenn Hanson on the guitar for example Mm -hmm. and you've got a bit of a piano and maybe a violin comes in here or two Uh, But here, they're just adding so much. They're adding accordions and and harmonicas. They have a harmonica for the Hoover Fixer Sucker guy, which I thought was just ingenious. (laughs) Oh, God. Perfect little country addition to that as well. You know, those beatbox drums. And it sounded like um, a pheromone, but apparently it's like a musical sword. That's what Mm. Kirsty was telling me. There's like a bit of a difference there. Um, They were incorporating that into certain songs. And I was just like, I was completely blown away by... Not only that, and sort of their renditions of all the songs, um, but like the physical work that they're doing on stage as well. Where there's there's actors rollerblading around the bloody, um, or I should say, roller skating around the stage, and others are playing violin while like riding on others' shoulders, and there's just like so much going on. But it all just worked, and it was all just absolutely incredible. I was a little upset that there was one track they didn't do, which was "Fallen from the Sky," which is a it kind of plays over a montage with me mm. in the recording studio, um, but I feel like they had a cheeky nod to it because that little blow up piano that they're using that on—they actually brought it out on stage in like the very last minute as like an encore thing. And I was like, ah, a little cheeky wink and a nod. <laughs> to the it fact is a Because yeah. out of all of
0: those songs, it's probably the one that doesn't really have any sort of emotional resonance. It's not like, sure. It's not like something like. Um, you know, especially when you think of when your mind's made up as in is yeah. at the yeah. start of that sequence and yeah. then it finishes with The Hill. Is
1: it The Hill? Or the... I, yeah, I think it, it might just be called The Hill. Yeah. I think it's The
0: Hill, yeah. Um, where it's just like, so it goes, you know, you have both the sort of the final creativity being Spurring Song and then this yeah. really deep emotional anecdote of, like, love that can't happen. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: And Very careful selection of what songs... Yeah, that song kind of is a bit
0: janky there in the sure, mid- middle sure. from a story. It makes sense in the context of the film. It doesn't so much probably in a
1: musical, especially right. when... They're trying to streamline it to the love story because they hone in on that way more and they have the big arguments where they're arguing about like, oh, you know, these, these last few days haven't meant anything to you. Why can't we be together? They hone in a little too much on that. Which, you know, it's a musical and you, you, your actors perform and everything. I get it. It was a lot more subtle in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, yeah, they're streamlining a lot of this stuff to, to, you know, pick the songs that are really relevant to the themes they're choosing to keep mm. in this play. Um, but I loved all of that. I mean, another great example of that is they strip a lot of the scenes where he goes out to buy the suits and then they're haggling down the price for the studio. They sort of sum that all up into one scene, but the way they sort of make up for that is within the blocking, where instead of him going out to buy a suit, she's gonna bring the suit to him. So now he's undressing on stage and there's a bit of an awkward thing there where, you know, he's in his underwear in front of her and like it's all to do with like increasing the blocking and the comedy side mm. of it. Just those little changes and switches. So
0: my the big question is from a multimodal yep. comparison, yeah. Which, which one would you would you still go film first?
1: I think in terms of the story, mm-hmm. I would go with the film because, again, I love how subtle so much of it is and, and the performances just feel so natural. They're basically just playing themselves. Um, while in terms of the music, I might actually have to go with the stage adaptation. Oh, wow. Just because it's so much more layered, there's so many more instruments being involved, it's so... just oh, It's just it's yeah. mind-boggling. I was just so completely... Well, both of us, you know, Kirsty's a musician, obviously, so she, she was getting more out of that than I was, but I was getting a lot out of knowing the differences and like i think i it's got amazing because all coming. three of
0: those films from that carney trilogy could mm. be turned into musicals very easily
1: absolutely
0: yeah um
1: i feel like begin again might be the hardest but yeah, I, I still think it's yeah, there. With a bit yeah.
0: of, the right sort of set design though I yeah think. i think from a i think sing street would have been the easiest of the three to be yeah, honest yeah i'm
1: um, i would if i had to guess i'll say there's definitely one that does exist for sing street yeah, yeah. 100%. We could look it up now, but I also can't be stuffed. No, that's fair. <laughs> uh, well, that's an interesting thing to kick us off
0: with um, in terms of uh, it's a little bit different. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. On my end, it's you know it's been a couple of films. I'll, I'll touch on um, another film. I don't have too much to add to it, but obviously it does star the front man that also is in our film of the week. Uh, I watched yeah. An Affair to Remember, which is a quite highly regarded 50s uh, love story. Um and stars Cary Grant also, and you sort of can see this 1957 film, and you can kind of see, obviously at this point, I think Grant was already pretty established by the time he got into North by Northwest, he's a Mm. big draw card um, for that film, Uh, and to be honest, you can see his quick-witted charmness, it pretty much is evident, and it's basically about two very, uh, a very successful um, businessman, goes on a on a Mediterranean cruise and falls in love with a girl and to be honest there's some really cool cute visual comedy gags mm. which with, within camera which is quite hilarious and entertaining Yeah. but I didn't get too much out of the I thought the love story was it has a very iconic top of the Empire State building scene oh, okay. um gets uh, not to spoil to it well I'm spoiling a 70 year old film or 65 how dare you um <laughs> There is, a obviously, the low point, one of the characters gets severely crippled. Okay. Um, it's like Muriel's wedding. they kind of just... <laughs> I, I think they handle it a little light-heartedly. It's a very light-hearted, kind of fun, romantic... And it's probably just a little too light-hearted. Like, I'm not expecting them to, them to go, like, the million-dollar baby route... Right. ...of being, this is now depressing for the next hour and a half. Like... Yeah. But... Like, one of the characters gets like that, and it's sort of, I don't know, it's kind of downplayed a little bit. And I I liked Grant's performance in it. I don't know if I was the biggest fan of his co-star, who I'm just going to
1: quickly get up. uh. Well, it's funny, because not to get into North by Northwest, but like you can make an argument that some of the stuff that happens in that film can be quite tragic on paper, but I think that film makes like an effort to be funny, and to almost mm. laugh those things off, but you're, you're saying that this film, it doesn't really do that, so it feels a bit more jarring. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think
0: it just... it's For me, it was a film that was perfectly adequate. It finishes at Christmas time. It's a very... There's a lot of very tropic, romantic drama sort yeah. of things in it, and but it just wasn't... And the quick-witter dialogue, the back-and-forth between uh, Grant and uh, Deborah Kerr, who was oh his, it's Deborah Kerr, yep, was was good. There was good chemistry there, natural chemistry. I but I would say like you know comparison to North by Northwest, I actually liked the chemistry between um, Grant and uh, God
1: the Hitchcock blonde. <laughs> the
0: in this particular thing, it was Grant and oh Eva, Eva Marie Saint. Ah, um,
1: even Eva, look at that. It's I, I probably Eve.
0: prefer their, their chemistry really right. like. but overall it's an adequate film I'm trying to get at least one other film in from each decade um, in yeah. this back end especially because obviously you know and it's evident in our polls we get further and further away from the contemporary people yeah, that see less stuff from those times
1: because you know what you know what does get ignore, annoying rather about going further and further in time is that they start putting the credits at the front of the film so like you usually have like a five, 10 minute window where it's like, Oh, I'm going to try and watch this film before, you know, 6 PM for example. And then it's like, Oh, you're going to hit literally zero, zero, zero on the other end of the the time because Mm. the movie just ends when it ends. There are no end credits in any of these films.
0: (laughs) So, and then from that film, that sort of is the romance of, of the time. I move into a contemporary retelling of a similar time period with uh, Woody Allen's 20s. 2016 2016 or 2018 film uh Cafe Society. Oh, okay. Um, Haven't seen this yet. Which stars uh, Kirsten Stewart and Jesse Eisenberg oh. and Steve Carell. Um in a a late 1930s uh love triangle drama set oh. in uh California. Look, the the film itself um was sort of you know, it was Woody Allen one hundred and one, and I have to throw this to you, Jake. Are you throw a fan means, of Jake. the Woody Allen uh, kind of over narration storytelling? Uh, point A, point like basically just a guy recounting, um, and 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 in this, Allen is a disembodied narrator. He narrates the whole story. Okay, um, never in it. He's just this. He's the uh, omniscient narrator. Is he meant to be
1: a character from the future who's reflecting on... No, he's just someone
0: who's telling this story of this love triangle of Eisenberg, who is the nephew of Steve Carell, who was a successful Hollywood producer. Right. Um, Kind of like
1: Richard McGonagall in 500 Days of Summer. This is just a story about a girl. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, (laughs) Eisenberg goes over there, falls in love with Kirsten Stewart, but little, you know, that Stewart and Carell have been having, like, a year-long relationship. (gasps) Oh, no. Um, look, it's a, it's sort of like, once again, it's one of these films where Alan's sort of doing his, his love letter to the classic Hollywood or the classic. New, and it, it's, sure. it is nice to be out of New York, though <laughs> the family, <laughs> for, for once, yeah, though the family yeah. is still set in New York and it sort of has the, 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 you can tell, obviously that's exactly what he was trying to achieve in Midnight with Paris was that recounting of early classic literature, but using a contemporary based setting. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's as good even as as, as, mid, as, yeah. as Midnight, Um, which I know you were, you thought was okay. I liked you, it. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was yeah. good. Um,
1: I can't even remember. We did it on the podcast. I'm Eisenberg's
0: very much playing Woody mm. Allen. Okay. Like, <laughs> just obviously, cause now Allen's like, what's in his late sixties, early seventies. He obviously can't play a young up and coming, but he, Eisenberg is pretty much encapsulating that neurotic sort of over everything's terrible, but, and you're, you suck, but I love you sort of,
1: <laughs> What sort a of, vibe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I actually like the, the Alan way of doing it. He's quite comedic and, and hilarious, but I know some people aren't a big fan of the way he sort of just block, like even he's blocking or it's very stage play and every character's sure, yeah. over explaining everything. And, but I don't know, I would throw it to you. What what are your thoughts on Alan?
2: Oh, it's tough because i
1: I think that might be the only one Midnight in Paris, the only film of his I've actually seen. But which, which, like you said, I liked. I, I definitely didn't dislike it. I don't. I didn't think it was amazing mm. necessarily. Um, I mean, inherently, I don't mind the idea of it. Again, it's all about execution, mm. so it's hard for me to comment on on that standpoint. But
0: admittedly, the film loses steam. I think it's. It got a right. good, I think the first half is quite strong. I think when the cat's out of the bag and certain events transpire, but the third act is quite weak.
1: Right. Okay. Um, I will say, having not seen a lot of his films, the idea of of a film feeling like a stage play where it's like over expository or um, unnecessary dialogue and like very simple blocking staging, like I don't mind that in theory. I think I, you know, if if a director will make a film like that and then make a film that was much more visual. Then I would very much gravitate towards visual film, but I also don't mind it at the same time.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 mixed because like the Sydney Lumet way of doing it is very entertaining, right?
1: Um, yeah, well, like Twelve Angry Men's like there's a lot of really interesting things they do with a camera in such a tiny space. Mm-hmm. So I've, yeah. yeah,
0: I didn't do too much interesting with the camera, and I think that that was another thing that sort of detracted from me. It was mm. very. It was a perfectly consumable film, but it wasn't anything that was prolific or even worth revisiting
1: yeah i mean I mean the perfect example this has came to my head because <clears throat> we did these two films pretty much back to back from memory when we did Marraney's Black Bottom mm-hmm. and one Night in Miami mm-hmm. where they're both sort of based on stage plays um they're not wholly similar themes, but they sort of touch on similar themes if if you've seen both films. Um, but I found one to be much more visual and have interesting editing and cross-cutting than the other, in the sense that One Night in Miami felt more like just a stage play, that, all right, well, let's, let's shoot the stage play, while um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom had more sequences where it's like, all right, now we're going to cut to you know this work factory, or they're going to do weird like weird camera tricks when they're um, using the mm. recording thing, and they, they get the camera right up in there. And there's just more visual storytelling going on in Ma Rainey, and I preferred that over One Night in Miami, if that's a similar Ooh, I comparison. I think I lean towards
0: Ma Rainey too, so... Cool, for yeah. ...for that reason. Um, there definitely was really good power dynamic shifts in that and mm. a way of translating that without saying it. Um, yeah, so that was food for thought, but I'll throw it back to you.
1: Yeah, no. Well, the rest of what I've seen um, pretty much revolves in exclusively around TV. Now, I'm, I'm up to date on obi One, so I I think it was only yesterday I actually called the fourth episode. didn't really have much more to say on that than just you can actually look at that have you seen it the, the new over episode that's not the one in the quarry is it It's no it's pretty much just like a heist no I no not. Oh, Okay. Good episode it was alright I mean the the thing I took away from it was it almost felt like the scene in A New Hope where they're like breaking into Empire territory okay. and, but the key difference and you can we can talk about this with North by Northwest because I think this is something really important about North by Northwest mm. is the telecommunications or lack thereof In A New Hope, when everyone sort of splits up into their own little groups, they don't really have much communication between... There's a little bit. Yeah. You know, they find comms and stuff, but generally, they, you know, um, Han can't talk to Obi-Wan during the mission, for example. There's a lot of miscommunication going on there. While in this one, it's like, well, now we're in a more contemporary age, all the characters just have their own little mobile phone devices when they're breaking into doing this heist, so to speak. And I just found it interesting how that almost changes the dynamic of how you arise drama mm-hmm. in a high situation where, oh no, they lost the phone, so now they can't communicate. Or, oh, oh no, the enemy overheard the communication, so now they're drawing towards. Uh, uh, it, I don't know. I just thought it was yeah. interesting. I don't think I've given it a it.
0: watch. I was watching. Mm-hmm. I got caught watching other shows. Right. So,
1: well, the the next one I was going to talk about was Stranger Things, which mm-hmm. I know you've been watching. That
0: I've ticked off the only the first episode though. Oh, okay. As you've said. They, they are long. movie they length are long. episodes. Yeah, um, I
1: think right now, I think it's a safe space to talk about at least just the first episode. Um, yeah, sure. Well, I, I feel like I, I kind of, not spoiled it, but you know, I talked a bit about the Wes Craven inspirations and in, in its horror and I mean, how they it's, It, it characters. really is just nightmare. On Elm Street. It? <laughs> it's, just, it's him too, isn't it? It's um the guy who plays him. If Robert England appears at some point in the season. Okay but I won't but say he's not the monster. He's not the monster. Okay. But he does appear in the season at one point as in one episode, which yeah, is that, very clever.
0: That first episode I really I'm I'm big you know it's so funny because you were 100% right. God, there are so many different storyline <laughs> threads in that first episode. And you forget I I I will have to admit. It's been so like a couple of years, and obviously yep. inundated with all this these other shows and stuff. I completely forgot where we ended last year. I know I remember Billy dying. Yeah. And, obviously, Hopper not dying.
1: Right. But dying. Dies, but doesn't.
0: The fact that they spoiled that at the end, em- like, the Immediately, post, yeah. it's crazy. No um,
1: confidence at all on the, uh, in the
0: audience. Yeah, and I have to concur with you. It, it's sort of, like, almost like we don't need to keep Winona Ryder, or Winona Ryder
1: could find relevance elsewhere. Right. Um... Yeah, so that really, that is easily really my need... least favorite part is is her and then the Hopper stuff and how that all comes to connected. That's easily my least favorite part. Yeah, of the
0: show. Um, I'm I'm liking. Uh, so I had to obviously check uh, the age, the canonical age, and they're meant to be fifteen mm. or sixteen, oh, yeah. depending on. <laughs> uh, I think um, Max is meant to be a year older. Than, oh, okay. The rest of us. That's right, because they
1: were eleven in the first season. Yeah, so canonically yeah. they're meant
0: to be fifteen. And to be honest a lot of them in real life are only 17 to 20. They go up right. to 20. Right. I mean, Billy so. Bob
1: Brown turned 18 pretty recently.
0: So they're not as old, like they're not as disjointed from their ages as I first thought. Right. Obviously puberty, not puberty is a very, <laughs> a very well uh, and isn't one of the, one of the older I think um not Nancy what is it, Nancy who were the three There's
1: Nancy Will oh there's My Hawk as well. And then you've got the Steve Harrington character.
0: Yeah, Nancy. What are the other two boys' names? The ones from the. Will the, and Steve? Yeah, Steve's 30. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> they're, they're way older than they're their current right. stage.
1: But the but the other thing is they don't look really any older at all than they did in the first season. And, and that's because, yeah, because yeah. obviously they were playing older characters in the first place. So it's worked out kind of
0: good for them. But yep. obviously, puberty is a, a cruel mistress that can send you in. <laughs> any different direction um, lucas
1: looked like he just shot up <laughs> yeah,
0: he's 20 and you're just like you and are- you do not look 15 yeah okay i like going back to the actual episode i liked the first episode's storytelling introducing right. a bunch of new characters um, yeah yeah There's and in introducing there. them pretty fairly um and and pretty interestingly hmm. um obviously like like you said People die and maybe they're being, at least from a first episode point of view, you feel like a lot of them are being introduced so they can be killed off. <laughs> uh, bringing Lucas's little sister into the the fold was a very good
1: idea, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. In that first episode. I will say she definitely, she has less to do this season than, than in the third season. Okay. Because I think her response was a bit mixed in the third season. Yeah, I forgot how she is quite involved in the third season. Yeah, she's like helping them break into the Russian underground thing.
0: Yeah. It I've, I enjoyed the first episode. And I'm excited to see where it goes. How so? You've watched all of. So I've this.
1: seen the seven that are out, and then the last two come out in like a few weeks now. It's not okay. too long from now, um, and they're meant to be like two and a half hour epics, which I'm I'm not like excited for, but also not. I mean, I don't. Uh, it's good. I'm enjoying and it. This is not
0: the last season.
1: This is no. Not there the great. there is one more season after, which what I don't know. Ne- yeah. I'd, I don't Such
0: know. an odd um, release schedule. Well,
1: they've actually come out and said that you know whatever happens at the end of this fourth season is sort of each season feels like a reset where you you, know, you watch episode one and they kind of have to reestablish where everyone is. All right, well these people have moved to this school and this is like normal life before the creepy stuff starts seeping yeah. back in. I think mean, they're going to skip that whole phase in season five. It's just going to go straight into the action. I guess there's unresolved issues. Mm. Um, that's the vibe I get, which I think is a good way to go about it. Because a month ago, I would have told you, just end it. Just end it at season four. But now that I've seen it, I'm kind of seeing how it's paced. And it mm. it feels like the like the overall like evil of the upside down and who's in charge and what's what. It's, it feels like that's all starting to come together in a much more complete way. As opposed to just, oh, this was a threat, but now we have an even bigger threat. And so it feels like we're finally reaching that peak of, I think we've get a we got a handle on the big baddie of the whole series as opposed to just per season yeah. um, base. But yeah, some of the other notes I wanted to point out, um, there's perfect use of Philip Glass music cause from Koi Nescozzi towards the end of the season. I was like, I guess it is a- 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 80s music. It's a Koi Nescozzi mm-hmm. soundtrack. So I like the implementation of that. I love the, it's part CGI, part different casting. I'll look it up quickly from Marty Blair. Who plays like the young Millie Bobby Brown, who you see in the first episode for for a second, and may or may not come back later in the season, um, but that CG I thought was fantastic to make her look sort of like a younger child again, mm. um, and they they really nail it. You will see some of the stuff that comes up with juxtaposing the two Millie Bobby Browns, if you will, um, but I liked a lot of that stuff. And um, the next point I don't want to say because I don't want to spoil it for you. But, I don't mind that much. Okay. Th- there's no, like, nail in the coffin yet, but they're really hinting at this idea of Steve and Nancy getting back together. I'm just kind of like, why? It feels like we're going in circles. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I don't know. It's not like nothing's happened, but they're, like, very clearly inferring it. Like, oh, they're looking at each other again. Oh, Steve shirtless in this scene, and she's checking him out, and it's like they broke up already. Yeah, she's know. with the other one. I know, she's with Will. Will. Yeah, uh, yeah, anywhere, anyway. yeah, <laughs> but that could
0: just be one of those uh, a something to happen in this season, and will be Will and her will be all good by season five. But we'll, yeah, you yeah, know, potentially,
1: I, I don't know. know. They haven't cleared that up yet at this point in the season. So, okay, fair enough. So yeah, but I'm excited um, for you to watch the rest of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely am trying to sink my teeth. Obviously, there's a lot. There's, There's a lot. lot out right now. Yeah. Um, like The Boys.
1: Oh, you've been watching The
0: Boys! So I've watched the first four episodes that are currently out. I have to say, boy, it's... It's a good show. It's one of those things that... I'm a little... So I'm a little worried in this third... Actually, I'm not. Because what they've done achieved in the two and a half seasons that are out... Yeah. It's had a very natural uh, progression. Um... It's very interesting how much drama you can slip into this sort of um, neo noir esque or probably like what reality version of what superheroes would be in society. Yeah. Right. Um, it's I've I've enjoyed it. I think um, some characters uh, cyclical behavior is a little frustrating, mm. um, but when it comes to, like, the sort of the main protagonistic group and even just the natural um, progression of, like, the show's big villain, which is basically just evil Superman, basically. Um, <laughs> and it has been really good yeah. um, and really naturalistic. And there's a lot of moving pieces, and I've really liked how they've managed to balance that all out. Um, I'm I'm intrigued to see where this season goes because they're starting to... Uh, introduce um, the like the syndrome effect where there are going to be certain resources that allow certain characters to be superheroes for limited periods of time. Okay. And that's leading to a whole new psychological aspect of these characters that weren't you know gifted and now being given the same power and being corrupted by it. So mm. um, intriguing uh, story. I'll keep you posted. But I really like the stylists, stylistic nature of it. And
1: how messed up it gets (laughs) oh it gets messed up it's messed
0: sometimes you're just like wow that is just it's level of gore is is sometimes a little hilarious how insane it is (laughs) and just how it it really does sometimes feel like a a, as a teenage boy you'd just be snickering and loving right
1: right how how crude it can be sometimes so there's a part of me that loves that when I go to watch, like, a body horror film, for example, it's like, there's a, there's a sick part of me that's like, I just want to see how bad this can get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's
0: unashamably uh, crude. Right, um, right. For a, in, a, in a positive way, but... Cool. Um, yeah, definitely keeping tracks on that and enjoying it. Well... So, s- so, much, so much to
1: watch. So much to watch, there's always much. Well, speaking of unashamably crude, really need to get that segue in there. I finally finished F is for Family.
0: <laughs> that's it that's the end of the that's show. it it's done have you seen the new Bill Burr thing the Bill Ooh. Burr presents all the comedians on it oh
1: I, yeah I did it came up on Netflix and I was like oh my god that's wait awesome. have you have you seen it mm-hmm okay was it was it more like a collection of comedians yeah. okay I was so kind of like, like Jimmy
0: Carr's in it okay, okay seven or eight minutes Bill does the first 10, but he's the host of the... Right, right. Bit, bit of a bummer, because it's like, Bill is like our favourite comedian. That's it, his, yeah. His 10 minutes is just classic him. I think he's getting better the older he's getting too.
1: Oh, that's it. Well, um, I and mean, Paper Tiger was incredible. I would argue Paper Tiger is the best one. Yeah, so um, I, I feel you're, I think you're right there.
0: Um, But, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And they're obviously... The thing is, when everyone's only got 7 minutes, I think it is, Yeah, it's like you're not really getting every... No one's really getting... Like, obviously, they've mastered that because that's what they used to do. Yeah. But some of them were obviously more funny than others. But I actually don't like how... I was actually... I had a gripe with the the crowd because I thought the crowd really liked... So, like, it obviously shows how... how different crowds really operate. And I really think a lot Mm. of that crowd obviously saw the lineup and went on board, but really wanted, like, Bill to do right. more. They were a Bill Burr crowd, which yep. meant when Jimmy Carr came out, Jimmy Carr didn't get that many laughs, and I was right. kind of surprised, but it's like, Jimmy Carr is so shock humour-based. Yeah. Did they
1: not tour this, or is this a one-time recording? The it audience was a one-time was... post-COVID
0: yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that's and that's why. So some of the comedians, like some of the female comedians, I thought were really funny. It's yep. not hitting, like, yep. at all. Um, and it was interesting to see the, the difference in uh, how... Really different comed- comedians work with different rooms. So, those specials, they I don't know if they work because of yeah the audience is obviously. Yeah, you might get 2% of the audience wanting to see this and 5 wants to go see this. And they're going to find that 7 minutes really funny. But then they might not like one of the other comedians. Yeah, that's so it. So, it doesn't really work. For, every time Bill went out there and said something, was really funny.
1: Well, that literally the reason I haven't watched it is because when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, and you said from Bill Burr. And I looked it up on Letterbox, and the first review that came up, the negative reviews, people did not like mm. this. But the first one that came up is just like, I got sad every time Bill Burr left the stage. Yeah, and I was like, well, I'm probably not going to watch this. Then I might yeah. watch like his ten minutes, but
0: I think it's like they're really trying to market it like it's Bill Burr, right? But it's not really. It's <laughs> they it almost is- sucking
1: me in. Z, yeah. they almost did it. Yeah. It's not. It's not <laughs> great.
0: But uh, back to Effort for Family.
1: Yeah. So strong the, the- ending. I yeah, I think. I don't think it was my favorite season. I, mm. to be fair, I've, I'm so far removed from it's like you Were Stranger Things. Like it's just it's been so long since I've seen it. I think I actually looked this up, so I think it was episode. Oh god, it was the I think episode eighty. I can't find it in my document, but it was the um, the director's corner for Paul Thomas Anderson that um, I first watched. Well, I first talk about it, and then I watched all four seasons back to back to back to back. So it's been what nearly two years mm. now. Since I I've think season it. four is the best season. It's a good season.
0: Uh, I'm, I think season I actually right, really like three and four. Mm. Um, not the biggest fan of two, which I know you really like too.
1: I liked two. I well specifically what I remember about liking with two is that it does sort of all the different arcs start to funnel together when you realize it's it's a family coming together to to make a living. Where like you know Bill's doing what he can to pitch in financially, and and you know his wife is pitching into financial they're like they're all doing i i like the unity in what that mm-hmm. led to but with this last season i think first off i oh it's not the shortest but it's shorter than most seasons it's like mm-hmm. only the eight episodes um a lot of the arcs and the storylines were kind of there like i thought you know bill sort of being like a sort of a junior police officer and then bob starting his own chicken restaurant i was like a lot of that was like I'm not getting the finality that I was looking for. It really comes in very late. Yeah, it's a very abrupt ending. It's odd, oh, dude, the ending. It's like literally the last four minutes. Is it? It really encapsulates the idea of like, you know, generational trauma, I guess, and like fatherhood, and and it's very similar to BoJack in those themes. I think BoJack's got more broad themes, but F's family is very much about you know tying the knot on the insecurities about you and your father and um you know, changing things. Like you the buck stops at you and you as a new yeah. father have to you have to start beginning that change for your kids and it's like it gets there, but you're right, it's incredibly abrupt. Hmm. Like the last five minutes of the whole series and it's like it I just felt like I wasted so much time with the oh Bob's doing a chicken thing and now the Do you like when when Billy um mm-hmm. the last line is like, Oh, you
0: should be a comedian. Oh, that was good. Yeah. It's not on <laughs> the, the nose. There's at no all. there's
1: no money there. Yeah, whatever he says. Yeah. <laughs> No, oh, I I like that. I mean there were a few arcs like Maureen who I liked the yeah, because she was trying to like bring her grandfather back from the dead and it's like well that ties into the fact that there's a new baby in the family so life death birth rebirth that. Mm. I I like those elements there and that eventually ties into the big family moment where they're bowling having a good time and like I think episode 6. So there's a lot of stuff I like in it. Mm-hmm. Um I think comedic I mean it's the same humor. A lot of it is gross out humor. You know, there's a part when they're in the bus and they're all sort of like, "Oh, there's the bum that watches his ass with the the fire hose or the um yeah, the the hydrant. the hydrant, thank you." Um, and that you know, there's the old hooker, we know her, and like just a lot of those like grossant imagery feels a little less Burr-esque, but then you have like the authoritative figures that have those very hypocritical lines. I wrote one down, um, where he's like, oh, like we enjoy beating up the kids." you know, from this small town, but when you damage a historical plaque that was engraved by prisoners, that's where we draw the line. Like, those lines, that, that's very Bill Burr-esque. <laughs> yeah. Of, like, how are these, like, religious enforcers, you know, what what's hip-hop? A lot of star power in the show, though. I think that's mm. I And I really liked
0: the Bill Burr, Laura Dern. Um,
1: I, Yeah, I always it's forget S- it's her. It's, she's so yeah. good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sue's a really underrated character. that's her character. name. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I I think... She's got a great arc as well where she um, sort of becomes like a mother figure to a bunch of new parents. Yeah. And she does it at Vic's house and um, that ties into like her gay brother and how they come together with the family. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I just thought they sort of had a lot of arcs that I felt were unnecessary. Kind of felt season two-esque. We should be really trying to get everything... Again, with season two, like everything should be funneling towards one general thing, which... Mm is how they wrap up the series, but it didn't feel like everything was, like, that unified, which which was a bit of a shame. But generally, the show as a whole, I do like it. I do... I recommend it. I think it's good. It has a lot to say. I don't think it's, like, A-tier animation, but I I enjoyed it. I will say, though, it was episode 80, by the way. I made sort of a prediction about Maureen, which I can now clarify, now that the series is finished. Mm Because I remember saying at the time, I said the, the whole idea of like, she has like a really tomboy personality and there's all these lines of like, oh, girls can't be astronauts. And I was like, I, I thought they were going to take that really far by the end of the series. I said, quote, like they were going to take it further than just like, oh, she comes out as, as gay or bisexual in the series. I thought they were going to make her trans by the end of the series. I was really off <laughs> on that prediction. Yeah, <laughs> I thought they were really going to go there, but nah, no, really. no, no, like, oh, she's a tomboy yeah fair enough that's fine well uh, <laughs> was the incorrect. only
0: other thing i caught this week was the mm. new adam sandler film
1: yes hustle
0: tell me about this seek look there is a lot to like about hustle Ooh, um very good straight off the bat obviously i've said on this show i'm not a big fan of the adam sandler comedies the
1: uh early... like the happy madison grown-ups but yeah, whenever I see Happy called...
0: Madison at the start of a movie, I'm like, "Oh boy, here we go!" Can't <laughs> wait for this overly juvenile comedy and yeah, Jack and Jill. Yeah, and it's like Waterboy and and even Happy Gilmore. I just do not get around those. Kinds oh, of films. okay, you're going way back. Um, I've never been a big fan of those films, and then the Safties came along, and created Uncut Gems, where they kind of used Sandler's crudeness. And effectively applied it to this high stakes tension drama based around uh, that one big win, right? That, that one big break, and you couldn't ask anyone else to play that role. And we, and I think I found I was like, oh, they've found sort of the perfect way of if if he's given a really kind of a strict point to point plot, his comedy can carry weight and be intentional and entertaining. And I, rather than just, Oh, a dumb water boy. Who's really good at playing football. Like I just don't get that sort of slapsticky comedy. Right. Okay. Um,
1: so even early Adam Stanley is like not into yeah. interesting. Can't, get around, it. Can't okay. get around
0: it. Um, and then hustle comes along and it's about this, uh, it's a really interesting, um, it's, you know, it's, he's a scout that goes to a lot of different countries, and he wants to be sort of an assistant coach and they're just little things like i like that this guy who's playing this you know adam sandler's a larger bloke and Mm. he hasn't got a supermodel wife when he looks like adam sandler looks (laughs) and he i there was a degree of maturity here it's like the same sort of thing it's like he's very homely very real very authentic Um, is this
1: meant to be a comedy no, I mean,
0: I, just, okay. I think it's a, I think it's, meant, it's a sports drama, right? But it's okay. got like that comedy undertone and element to it. Like he's, he constantly makes fat jokes about himself and stuff. Right, like that.
1: so funny people esque. Yes. Shut up, a tower. Okay, yeah. okay. There's
0: definitely there is that. It's honestly, it's a really good film. Um, it stars, like I said, it's got Adam Sandler. It's got a plethora of real life NBA players in it. Oh, yeah playing either themselves or characters relative to the plot, which means all of the basketball was authentic. They've chosen to hire, like they've chosen to go with authentic sports athletes and make them camera ready. Right. Um, Which is great because it makes it, obviously the sports stuff becomes incredibly authentic. There's some really nifty uh, POV, sort of fisheye POV stuff during the game. That's cool games which i really like obviously the the plot basically leads to adam sandler is offered this assistant coach position by the founder of the philadelphia 76ers yep um and then the the, the day of getting this job the founder dies founder's son inherits it the son's son's a piece of work
2: oh, basically okay. played
0: by ben foster uh, yeah. i <laughs> love a bit of ben foster um and yeah look honestly, there's some really cool things with the camera, like I said uh the crazy amount of actual authentic basketball legends or active players that are in it is, makes the the athletic side really cool and authentic great yeah. camera tricks and a simple a simple story really um of uh this uh finding this golden Spanish player who's got like a comes from you know to riches basically and but there's that, that perfect balance of, of sport meets comedy meets drama meets weight. And it has a really compelling ending. Um, mm. And I, I actually think it's nice to see a film like this. This is the sort of films you, you see come to Netflix or come to a streaming service. And you're like, yeah, like I'm probably enjoying this movie a lot more because I'm watching it at, um, at my home oh, okay, rather than watching right. it in the cinema. But it's, yeah, it's a really, actually a really strong film. All things considered, gave me high nice. flying bird um, huh? vibes. High oh, okay, right, right. Um, with the whole sport agent side, that one's definitely more agent heavy. Okay, it's a bit more sport based but yeah, uh, it was a good film. Nice. a
1: glowing call? review from yeah. Zeke Morgan Hind. you no got anything else you'd like? To <laughs> no, add? that was that was it. I I have uh, disclosure. I've seen one other film. I'm going to save it, um, which we'll talk. I think we'll probably talk about at the very end of this show. Sports. in terms of how we're going to record the next couple, but yeah. that's quite okay.
0: No worries. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week, but
1: Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching North by Northwest.
2: What's that supposed to be? Cars waiting outside. You will walk between us saying nothing. What are you talking about? Let's go. What the devil is all this about? Why was I brought here? Games? Must we? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. I told you, I'm not Kaplan, whoever he is. Do you intend to cooperate with us? I'd like a simple yes or no. A simple no. A pleasant journey, sir. You see, they try to kill me. Well, I mean, after all, Your Honor, would I make up such a story? That is precisely what we're intending to find out, Mr. Thornhill. She seemed to think I'm Captain. I wonder if I look like Captain. Do you know this man? You <sighs> saw the newspapers. My fingerprints were on the knife, I'm a car thief, a drunk driver, and I murdered a man for revenge. I wouldn't have a chance. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? I don't like the games you play, Professor. No Poor as hell, Mr. Thorne. Even when it's a cold one. Is it one to fifteen, a level? And now what's the trauma I'll be here for today? What happened to the first two marriages? Well, my wives divorced me. Why? Well, I think they said I'd let two dollar a life. Mr. Captain, we've had just about enough of you. Plains dust and crops Where there ain't no crops
0: Advertising man Roger Thornhill Is mistaken for a spy Triggering a deadly Cross country chase
1: Clean and Clean and simple Clean and simple
0: Not like this plot (laughs) That is no. It is a plethora of mystery and intrigue and spy stuff and not spy stuff and romance. And it's basically Bond before Bond.
1: I'm going to take that, what you just said, and put it under the trailer. And it, uh. will, it will sound will sound authentic. <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
0: so obviously we have made that joke. It's Bond before Bond, but it really is three years before Dr. Mm. No.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. This is 59, Dr. No's 62. And, um... I I was surprised by that because as I was watching it, I think I kind of alluded to this earlier in the show already, but I was sort of picking up on this idea of like, this is kind of, I didn't really get the sense it was poking fun at itself. I think that becomes a bit more clear later on when it's like, oh, there's a double spy. No, she's a triple spy. And it (laughs) it gets a little wacko like that. Um, But then when I look at the Wikipedia page, one of the first things it says is that critics almost immediately recognized this and hailed it as like a great self uh satirical comedy um or parody if you will mm-hmm. which i was like i i don't know if i'll call it a parody it's more in the same realm as i alleged to kubrick earlier with dr strangelove where it's like that's sort of a parody but it's also a really good film mm-hmm. um probably more of a comedy than this is because it's like, i think this is like a generally great suspense spy thriller Like, I'm invested in it. I offensively am. Even if I'm finding it simultaneously quite funny.
0: (laughs) It definitely... I mean, it deals... I think that there is... Yeah, I would say it's not on the same uh, level of overt satire like Strange Love is. Yeah. It is definitely self-aware. It kind of carries itself with that same sort of uh, awareness of something like Kingsman in a more contemporary uh, uh, lens where, you know, that film is overtly... Recognizing its spy genre tropes and yep. its self-awareness to so the fact it has an antagonist that openly coins and quotes the villains of spy movies and, <laughs> and,
1: and recognize and even the ending is like abruptly overly sexual innuendo filled. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, is yeah. it not? Yeah, it, no, does it not is, carry yeah.
0: the same sort of like yeah, and then but it still has violence and powerful fight and fight scenes and weight to it. Yeah, when great action. Yeah.
1: Great action, yeah.
0: Um, so, and that film, yeah, definitely still has like its heavier weight stuff. Like it has a, you know, its antagonist comes from a domestic abusive household. And, mm. and, and whereas in this, it's like, you know, this guy is really just a salesman who gets caught up in this extraordinary uh, circumstance, but it grounds itself into a degree in reality because it makes every person watching it feel like it, this could happen this, to them.
1: This could be me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It feels so classic in that, in that sense, where it is like, you know, the the prototypal protagonist that we, you know, we, or the archetypal protagonist, I should say, where it's like we put ourselves onto them. They're the everyman hero. Maybe a little bit more witty that we we would like to be as witty as this person. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of little clever things, like at the auction, for example, where he gets himself out of jams in quite a clever ways. Such a smooth talker. Yeah, that it, kind it's
0: of, very kind of... catch me if you can in that yeah, sense.
1: Yeah, like, yeah.
0: you know, Leo's character is living this extraordinary life. Right. And... But we still and,
1: relate to it in in a sense. Yeah,
0: like it's it it it's that whole thing about just every person can go and do that. And I mean, this comes back to the Hitch, you know, why Hitchcock is regarded like in this era with with Kubrick and you know like Akira's, um, sorry, uh, Kirisawa, mm. um, uh, as why he was such a iconic uh, director of the time because. You know, he was able to have such a range of films. I mean, mm-hmm. this this goes against every other one of his films, which are often one or two location-based films.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Even, like, Rear Window is just so fixed. You're stuck in a room for almost the entire film. Yeah,
0: or Psycho. You spend most of the time at, at the Bates the... Motel. Yeah, yeah. and Or in The Birds. It's just one island, really, um, off the, off the coast. So yeah. to have a film that has so many historic landmarks also in it, too, and or go from an array of different uh, uh, environments to go from, like, crop-dusted fields to skyscrapers to the top of bloody Mount Rushmore, I mean.
1: (laughs) What a great, like, climax thing. Before I forget, I just love that, by the time you get into, like, that third act, it's almost every shot, every exterior shot, the heads are in the background, which Mm. is almost like kind of, I thought of Red Rocket, you know, Sean Baker, it's like... Almost every exterior shot in that film, you have like the industrial views with the smoke coming out of the chimneys, and I felt like a real ode to, to this film.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and it's so funny when you read up on like they weren't allowed to um, shoot on the actual Rushmore, and then right. on top of that, they that, that does not surprise to, me? <laughs> they weren't allowed to uh, integrate the faces, them walking along the faces. Like, oh, okay, that was a whole thing. Like they had to often shoot around. them interacting with the actual monument, which is why they're often in the background or they have, like, the death scenes at the end of the film are actually off to the side and you can see the heads in the background. Uh, Ah, okay. It's kind of offsetted.
1: So a lot of it was, like, almost legal issues in a way.
0: Yeah, well, with the Parks Department. And then if you take uh, the public lounge at the start of the film,
1: Mm.
0: originally that was meant to be the United Nations building. Like, we see... Um, oh, okay. Roger walking up to the UN building, and they had another film being shot at the same time, and they were denied access. And Hitchcock, under no circumstances, was allowed to film anything inside the building. So that's damn. So one dime he goes in there, he's with like, "Do you phone. know who I am?" Yeah, He goes into it. <laughs> he goes, he, and they did know who he was. So yeah. he went in there with a photographer because he was allowed to photograph some of the insides. But he would be like shooting photos like he would shoot them in the film. Yeah. So we'd get like an actual live storyboard. And then he recreate. He, they paid like to recreate the lounge that's in a amazing. studio. I love that to have that murder scene because <laughs> they didn't want to have murder, and that's that the name because they didn't want to have a murder in the United Nations building.
1: Damn!
0: So that shot when he's walking into the building that's real, yeah. but they did that right. out of apparently they did that out of a they faked a cleaning van and shot it <laughs> shot. Roger, and that's just Roger walking. He's not playing, that's sorry. That's fantastic. That's Kerry uh, Grant literally yep. just walking into the building.
1: <laughs> that's brilliant. Without the permission. I love yeah. that. Damn, this is more guerrilla than I would have assumed. I mean, there's definitely an element of like...
0: It's methodical. Like, right. Like, they're obviously carefully considering it. And like, like I said at the start of the show, obviously having Lehman, the, the screenwriter for it, go and do all of these things. Yeah, it yeah. It's sort of kind of funny
1: well it's cause. methodical from like a plotting structural standpoint of like of you know where they go and what what's the purpose story-wise mm. and all that but then from a production standpoint yeah it just sounds so gorilla. and even <clears throat> even watching like one of the early scenes when they're in that initial car chase where it's you know, you would think oh uh, limitations of technological limitations of the time where they're clearly chroma keying the hood of a car in front of like a pov shot of the road and that's like how he's dodging all these cars is, is essentially a green screen effect yeah, but well, then with the projector effect Yeah, exactly yeah. but then later on i was surprised by this they had the shot that's like dangling off the side of a train and it does like that invisible cut pan where it goes to the inside of the train cart and i was like that was that was very that was real that was a clearly the camera was dangling off a real train so it was interesting, like kind of how they almost pieced the film together in that sense, mm. um, as well as all the legal logisticals. Or well, legal I mean, apparently it's they the went word, something
0: like four or five weeks over, and yeah. Grant got paid four hundred and fifty Gs, and then on top of that, because of penalty costs, he would get an additional five grand a day, and he ended up making an extra three hundred and fifty. Pooh! <laughs> off that penalty cost, that's how far over they went. And Damn. This is the only film um, Hitchcock did with MGM.
1: Oh, okay. So. That makes sense. Yeah, I didn't think about it, but often I, he uh,
0: does them with Paramount.
1: Yeah, I was didn't think about the logo. I did think that, I was. Oh, that's interesting. That, that, when it opened with the iconic music, of course, which mm-hmm. oh, it's just fantastic. Great music. Well, um, well they, it's very sparsely used as well. That that like main theme. I've heard it used like in in other pop culture references probably more than this film uses it itself, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite interesting, but you know to take it back to you know we're saying hitchcock is sort of very diverse in the types of films he makes and this is one of the one of the films where it's a bit more open in scale and there's a lot more locations but even if you compare it to something like vertigo which i think is a little closer to this film than these others in terms of like the size of it the scale of it yeah Um, and i think it only came out like a year before this one did but um tonally they're very different films that was much more psychological psychological and dark and, and really messed up in a lot of ways, what ends up happening, the obsession of certain characters in that film. But here, and it was very much a deliberate choice, I was reading Hitchcock, Hitchcocks so I just want to make something a bit more lighthearted, sort of void of meaning almost, even though I think there's still there's still themes to take away from this film of deception and deceit and this idea of like identity can get us in so much trouble, even though it is the wrong identity. The whole film was based around him, you know, talking to a waiter when he was calling another name and that's caused this entire... I mean, that's great plotting. Yeah. It's like that little that little decision he makes to just call over the waiter at that exact moment just completely dovetails this entire story of him yeah, on the run on the lamb.
0: And there's a really interesting um, sort of thing that ties into this. Mm. So apparently over a dinner one night, um, Hitchcock and Lehman were, like, talking about... Um, the enthusiasm that like Hitchcock had for the um the film. And he says, Ernie, do you realise uh, what we're doing with this picture? The audience is like a giant organ that you and I are playing. Mm-hmm. At one moment, we play this note on them and get this reaction and then we play a chord and we get a reaction that way. And someday we won't even uh, have to make a, make a movie. There'll be uh, electrodes implanted in their brains and we'll just press different buttons and they'll go, ooh, and ah, and we'll frighten them. <laughs> And we'll make and make them laugh, won't that be wonderful? So it's sort of talking about
1: like, wow, um, that's a quote.
0: Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's obviously what Hitchcock's trying to say with that is is sort of the the light-hearted emotions and the adventure and stuff and the ability to basically create a movie that has tropic entertainment to it. And yeah. you know, we talk about that and we compare that to how these Bond films became very formulaic and the mm-hmm. Bond genre yeah. became... We knew it would be um, visual paraphernalia when it comes to locations, like where the locations in a Bond film are uh, essential to plot and often set piece. You know, it's often... In that, it's set piece, something happens. Set piece, something yeah. happens. Yeah, And essentially, North by Northwest is doing this because it's putting roger in all of these different set pieces in which something happens yeah look there is a a loose threaded plot but it's like the whole the whole thing for why roger is mistaken for a uh, a spy is a macguffin yeah (laughs) like it has like it's not like it's microfilm is apparently the thing that they're looking for
1: which is such like an an inconsequential Well, not inconsequential but like the importance of it is so mute yeah. And like, you're watching the film and it's like, you know, around the turn of the first act, you've realised that the, that the name... Um, oh, George... George... Kplan um, or Kaplan, whatever. I can't even remember the name. Like, that doesn't matter. It's like, oh, well, that's not a real person. There's kind of... Uh, all the microfilm and the statue is like that. Yeah, that was a MacGuffin, but, like, it doesn't almost matter. Yeah. It's it's the case in
0: Pulp yeah. Fiction. It's It just really gets the characters from A to B to C to D to E. Yeah. But the... The film is, is inconsequential when you look at that last, the way that last scene plays out. Like mm. it gets shattered and broken. We see what's inside it, um, yeah. but even before that, that final, it's all about. It's the art of survival, as he says in that in that mm. exchange. Um, that's essentially what the film is. Well, we <laughs>
1: we start the film with with his, you know everyday life and with with roger it's only five minutes before he's thrown into the abyss so it's like we're following the story from his perspective yeah and it doesn't really matter what the macguffin is from his perspective because you're right it's about survival he's getting chased down by would do you call them gangsters i don't even know what you would call them yeah, <laughs> yeah they're gangsters and then you got the police as well and there's internal conflict with the family where his mum doesn't trust him and um so we're looking at it from his perspective and and the the big thrills are when you know, we meet our Hitchcom- uh, Hitchcock blonde, Jesus Christ, Eve, who is, you know, she's a double agent, she's a triple agent. And it's like, we only care about the relevancy of that to to Roger. Mm-hmm. And how does that make Roger feel? You know, it, do- it doesn't matter, like, the big spy element of what what's the microfilm or what's this or that. Yeah. It's all, frankly, irrelevant. So I, I do like that approach because it makes it a bit more personable. Again, you're putting yourself in that crazy, wild scenario.
0: Yeah. I mean... It- And I I really do think that that's sort of what the action-adventure genre is. And it's Mm. like, is this that much removed from something like Indiana Jones? Like, I mean, it's just a guy... I mean, the guy's just wearing a classier suit, really. (laughs) Um, And obviously, Indiana Jones has the uh, historical adventure aspect to it. The um, same thing with the National Treasure films. But inherently, it's someone who gets put in extraordinary uh, circumstances, which... um, Uh, a seemingly ordinary man gets put in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. Essentially, that's what James Bond is, but he's an operative. So this takes it that step further. It puts a normal person... He has nothing to do with
1: this world, yeah.
0: Charismatically navigating himself through it. And I think that's why this film's so entertaining, but kind of loose in its plot. Like, he doesn't Mm -hmm. really... Does he learn anything? Does their character change, really? No, because he doesn't become a spy after this. We just know he ends up being okay.
1: Um, yeah. I'm trying to think, because it's, sort of not, it's not a rule. It there are no rules in film Z. No. There are no rules. But the general thing is that if your character doesn't change, he's trying to change the world around him, which I guess in this scenario, and it's just an objective for him to achieve. Can he convince the world around him to believe him? Because part of the frustration is he's an upstanding civilian, you know, he's not like, he doesn't have a drug mm-hmm. or alcohol problem. He doesn't have a history of violence or, or crime or anything like that. So when nobody believes him, it's frustrating because it's like, but look at him. He's like, he's clearly sound of mind and he's he's an upstanding citizen. Like, that's mm-hmm. where the frustration comes from. So I guess the fact that he kind of achieves that in the end, he convinces the world that he's innocent, even though the film kind of goes on such a, a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the action adventure, almost doesn't matter anymore, I guess. But you're right. I don't really think it matters that he doesn't change. Yeah, I don't think he changes.
0: It's not a conventional film in terms of like yeah. I don't. I you say you can see a three act structure. I guess there is right. a call to action. But for me, it just feels like yeah. It's just a guy really navigating the the art of the art of survival. It's mm. it's he's just. Getting put in extraordinary circumstances like the crop duster scene where he's out in the middle of nowhere and yeah. he thinks that is a fantastic thinks, scene. He thinks he's safe because he's in complete and utter isolation. Mm. But even the mundane looking crop duster in the distance is out to get him. <laughs>
1: Well that idea Which of...
0: leads to a pile with an oil truck and a dramatic <laughs> explosion as he awkwardly I... runs away from it.
1: <laughs> I gotta say, and I I don't want to get into it too much because it may or may not be part of my highlight scene, but for a film that obviously it's a classic, it's mm-hmm. been around for many, many decades, I've actually went into this fairly blind. I didn't really know much about the plot or what was going on. I knew virtually as much as the log line we read last week teased. Mm-hmm. But everyone, you can't escape the iconography, that shot of him running away from the propeller plane. That's probably one of the most iconic shots in all of cinema. So that's like the one piece of iconography I knew going into the film. But even just the way that scene plays with tension, and I, as an audience, I know it's like, okay, well, it's going to be the plane. That's what he should be looking out for. He said he's looking out for these cars, but I just thought that was like masterfully teased. And you're right, and it's like it ends in such a spectacular... I just burst out laughing. Because I did not anticipate it ending in that in that way. <laughs> There's uh, some
0: fantastic cinematography in this. It's unbelievable oh my god, some yeah. of the some of the shots. So that top down one when he's running away from the UN. Yes. Thing, where it has oh my god. that weird sort of miniature human distortion thing going on. He's running
1: to the taxi. He's a little little ant in just this world. Unbelievable. Yeah. That was incredible. The establishing shot of him in the cornfield was incredible. Um, even if for a lot of it, you're right. It's just sort of very simple camera was sort of panning and moving around the room during mm. these dialogue scenes but you're right you get these incredible wide vistas that shows just how small he is in this big world he sort of stumbled <laughs> upon yeah. into um i really love that and like i said some of the shots like when it pans into the train car i thought was just really inventive mm-hmm. i think hitchcock is a thing for that i really think if hitchcock is a thing for establishing like scenarios which i know is like that sounds like such a simple thing so like really any decent film should be able to do that especially with dialogue but
0: I mean I feel like this film deviates from his traditional catalogue like it's mm. more fun like we were saying and you, you know I, I think it's more about like an ordinary man being put in extraordinary circumstances you know if you compare it to films that are just as iconic like Psycho or mm. even Rear Window they're about characters being grounded in a place and the um sort of the mystery unfolding itself over time yeah um, yeah. And I think that this film obviously does something so different by putting, yeah, it still has a fish out of water situation, but it it sort of isn't so much about the mystery; it's more mm. about the caper and the adventure side. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than like you said, it's like there are the the film is littered with MacGuffins or things <laughs> that are like, yeah, it's not really that important.
1: Right, like, right.
0: But now this thing is presenting itself, this obstacle, this challenge. Uh, yeah. How he use you know like at the auction how he creates a diversion where he gets taken out by police so he can avoid being killed by
1: yeah <laughs> well th- at that point it's like well between the police and let's call him these gangster types like which is the safest of two evils you know to go yeah. through and you're right like the wit the witness of what he's doing to to and I and I love that the film actually that's like one of the few times where the film doesn't go out of its way to immediately explain what's happening when I think of like Hitchcock expository dialogue well not even expository but just like cementing the situation is when he's first kidnapped and he's in that library and he first meets like all these people and he's in the scenario like that exchange which is again an example like civilized crime civilized exchange they're not just going to kill him straight away Actually, gonna you know, are you you know, willing to Grant's cooperate? Grant's shyness and
0: quick wittedness <laughs> really just is so good, and that's yeah. like, oh, right, I'm gonna catch kid- up on my reading. <laughs> this is a this is a kidnapping, isn't it? Right.
1: Yeah, but just even that, and it's like they go through all the scenarios where he's trying to convince you know, well, what if I show you my ID? You know, there's my actual name. Like the conversations they have, it very much supplants. Like, okay, mm. well, they're never gonna believe him. It's off the table. You know, the fact that the, that it happens in the first ten minutes of film, it just jumps right into the action. I feel like that's sort of a staple of Hitchcock, but then you do have the visual storytelling where they, they have the phone booths and the camera sort of dollies across mm. all the different people in the phone booths. It starts with Eve and then I think it ends on one of the guys that's involved and that, that's like the last one. I'm like, just that's a great shot in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he does both those things really well um, through the dialogue and, and through the camera, no I suppose. Worries. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, buddy? Yeah, I think, you know, we sort of joked earlier about, I, I sort of... Laughed at how crazy the the plane sequence ended. I had no idea like how that sequence ended. I was shocked. But let's talk about the actual actual ending of the movie, <laughs> unless this is in any way shape or form your highlight scene. What the tunnel love? Well, <laughs> well, let's talk about the climax in general because, like I said, it all does lead to the mountain. That's that's R- what I was talking about with the train. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was indeed the climax. I walked right into that one. Okay. Well, well specifically... The Rushmore, like, final wrestle? Or? Well, that, but then the fact that it's sort of... The way that ends, because you're right, there's this, like, whole crazy narrative plot that's being weaved through at uh, these characters are trying to get out of this crazy scenario, and it does, you know, come, I'm going to keep using the word climax as the perfect example for the endings of this film, but the way it sort of abruptly just cleans up... Because my first thought was when... You know he's stepping on his on his fingers and they're both gonna fall off the edge, both our heroes. He's just like shot, and he's like, "Oh, I guess the county police are here and at first, I'm like, "Oh, it's a weird way to end it, but then they double down on the abrupt ending where it just like hard cuts to like you said, I think you said it's it' off a the match show. cut
0: it's a pick up and then transition yeah, it? yeah,
1: it was a match cut to him lifting her up into the the bed of the train calls her mrs uh what was his last name again? Fawn Hill, Mrs. Right. Fawn Hill, and all nostalgic. Let's make out on this bed again, and then of course you get the train shot, which is just classic. <laughs> and am- amongst other words you could use for that scene, but did this work for you? Like the abrupt, crazy, <laughs> um, happy ending? Yeah, if you will?
0: well, it's happy to an extent because obviously yeah. it's it's like the like he's been divorced twice. Like yeah, we're all we're 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 left to this point where, and it comes back to you got to love how how astronomically ordinary like roger thornhill is as a person like he's been right. divorced twice he's just and he's just a guy going through he's through a newsman this extraordinary adventure i mean yep. how else do you end that does he like it's he's not an explorer he's just someone who's tried to navigate the ex- extraordinary circumstances and, and ended up being uh resolved with him catching this this train and, and trying out a third marriage i, I feel like <laughs> that's the only way you can really end it um well i actually I, I thought was, it was quite a smooth tight ty- tying up of the bow um it is quick right. and kind of comes out of it
1: well I'm, I'm not even thinking about like the wider sense of like what does a third marriage mean to him as a character i'm not even thinking about that i'm just thinking like the fact that they're in this imminent danger they're both about to slip off this cliff and die and it's like on oh, no, a happy ending <laughs> like it's so clearly intentional yeah and saying so, I, I think that's where the self-parody part comes from where it's like that's the most clear thing to me that this film's a parody is that ending because of just mm. how abrupt it is on yeah. purpose Um, I'm I thinking more from that level of just like the immediate like I just kind of was like what the hell <laughs> And I've got this running on YouTube to be fair, as well. You could, argue,
0: you could also argue what, did, what what did I just watch? I just watched this man who just call over the wrong wrong uh, waiter at the wrong time. And yeah, yeah. Got set into this uh, series of unfortunate events. I guess so.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the whole premise of the film is kind of hilarious. Yeah. And entertaining for that for that exact reason, because it's. It, <laughs> And and to an extent, a lot of the Bond films kind of end the exact same way, with him right. driving off. Uh, the bad guys die, and then Bond Drive drives off with his the Bond sun. girl into yep. the sunset. Yeah, yep. and only in the recent era have they become a little bit less like that.
1: It um, almost felt very purposefully like when you watch films that have been like edited for TV, and yeah. there's like clearly a thing missing. It almost felt like it was trying to do that as well, <laughs> which is funny. Um, but yeah and even like you said like it feels like it's sort of like a bond thing But it's like this mm. even came out before bond so it's like it it kind of knew what the spy genre was doing and and took mm. a mickey out of it before the biggest spy of all james bond came into the mix so yeah. yeah i i definitely appreciate it it's obviously very jarring the first time you watch it yeah but the more i think about it i was like yeah it's that's really funny
0: so what is your highlight scene
1: jake um it's so my highlight scene North by Northwest I already teased it, but of course it has to be that whole scene with the propeller plane. But, more particularly, sort of everything that leads up to that. So starting from that big wide establishing shot of like this desert road with the cornfield and everything, it feels so... I was thinking of Sergio Leone the entire time. Mm-hmm. This was like such a western the way it's shot so carefully, there's no dialogue. He's watching these cars drive past. And we both had that experience of like, we're waiting for a car, we're waiting for an Uber or a lift from a friend and... Is that them? Oh, oh, no, that's not them. And kind of doing that over and over again and and panning from the cars. And then you see the one guy across the road. They even have that shot. It's such a Western shot where the camera is like in the middle of the road and they're both on each end of the frame. And he walks over and he's like, are you meant to be meeting someone today? (laughs) Everything that leads to that. And then with the plane in the background, it's just like, that is just class Classy yeah. tension it's like filmmaking. A, a, a short
0: film within the film.
1: Yeah, no, a thousand percent. That scene is that's a short film right there.
0: Yeah, oh, it's my highlight scene too. So oh, there you go. we haven't had that one in a while. Where we've been no, the same one.
1: It's it's so it's so obvious, but at the same time, it's just it's so well done. Yeah, it's such a it's such a perfect thing. I'll give a shout out to the scene again. Sort of what leads up to the scene where they're all in the library, sort of talking for the first time before they, I guess. Get him drunk and everything is um. I thought this like a weird wink and nod to the lighting department because there's already light coming in through the window. He goes up and he shuts the curtains to the light and then starts turning on all the practical lamps. I was like, that that's weird. <laughs> like, well, I guess he's trying to hide. He's trying to close the world off from what, yeah. the meeting they're having. I guess that's thematically there. But then he even stands in front of the lamp and gets like a Godfather silhouette going on (laughs) which I'm like this is just so like I guess it is purpose I mean this film is just a very very clever I think you're right I wouldn't call it a parody as much as it's just simply self-aware of of the genre that it's in
0: North by Northwest is only out on YouTube to rent or wide release Mm. on DVD and Blu-ray
1: no streaming options here yeah
0: but speaking of streaming options, Jake was <laughs> new to <laughs> streaming
1: platforms and cinemas this week. Oh, it's a good one. I gotta say, so we'll talk about it in a moment. But I actually ended up writing up everything that's coming out to streaming and cinemas over the next two weeks. Yeah, look at me, look at me go, getting all prepped. And what I noticed is that each streaming site gets a turn each week. So everything that's coming out this week. So for example, Netflix, Stan, Apple TV, Paramount Plus doesn't have anything out in the following week, but then things like Disney+, Plus, Prime, Binge, a lot of the stuff they have coming is in the following week. Well, there you go. So I thought that was really interesting. But if you do have Netflix, you can look forward to Spiderhead, which is a world where convicts are offered the chance to volunteer as medical subjects in order to shorten their sentences. That's a cool premise. I like that. One such subject takes a new drug capable of generating feelings of love and begins to question the reality of his own emotions. Now, it stars Chris Hemsworth... These other two I was more surprised by. Swesse by directed excuse me, by Skiv Kaczynski and stars Miles Teller, who of course were both involved with Top Gun Maverick just a few seconds ago. So that's cool. a quick bloody reunion <laughs> for both of them. But then again, Top Gun would have been shot before COVID, so mm-hmm. they've actually had a lot of time to make this film. Yeah, that's so. cool. Yeah, so that that's cool. Obviously a director actor duo might that might continue in the future. With John, uh, John, geez, Jose, Joseph Kvincy, Kaczynski, my goodness, and Miles Teller, of course. Also coming to Netflix, you have comedy specials from both Pete Davison and Snoop Dogg. Hell yeah. So... I'm down for Pete Davidson. Oh, well, there you go. I actually wrote Peter Davidson in my document. <laughs> He's still funny. He's funny. Yeah, I, I like him generally. The one stand-up I saw of him, I think it was on Netflix. I wasn't a huge fan of him. The it, collection, but... like the weird sort of... No, no, it was, it was a straight-up like 80-minute special or 60 minutes special I can't remember what it was called but the so one he talked about Ariana Grande probably yeah. I, I don't I like remember. that one I don't mind him as like a person yeah. I, I love the I love the the feud that he and, him and Kanye have I mean it's pretty funny I haven't, but, I haven't seen I know it's, that, that's getting very gossipy Hollywood oh, okay. shenanigans <laughs> I we already tell got you. through the Herd Depth stuff that's I know that's all one. that's all done and wrapped up I thank, can't believe people
0: flew over to be a part of that trial <laughs>
1: Yeah, you get tickets to be in the courtroom. Crazy. My favorite is when the TMZ guy like called her out and like, oh, well, you're accusing me of 15 minute fames. So I could say the same about you. And then when it cuts back to her, all the people in the front row behind her that are clearly just people who paid to see the drama, they're like, oh, i love have these big reactions. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm, I'm glad it's over. I hope neither of them work ever again. In the, <laughs> in the in the sense in the sense, particularly for Johnny. That he kind of laid his bed out in saying that I'm done with pirates. Like even if they asked me back, I wouldn't go. Like I'm like, if you made that statement, you kind of just have to, you kind of have to leave now. I reckon. Mm. Like great for you if you proved your innocence, but like also, you kind of can't be in anything anymore (laughs) anyway. Yeah, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway, back to streaming Zeke. Coming to stand this week, you have the mighty Bush: A Journey Through Time and Space. Which is a TV movie doco about the comedy trip. You also got Hunger, Five Feet Apart, Get Hard, The Gentleman, Child's Play, couldn't tell you which one, one of them, and a personal favorite of ours, which, oh my god, look at that. Once, <laughs> once comes to stand this week. There you go. Oh, that's perfect. tie. I didn't even know I was going to see the show when I wrote this down. That's brilliant. I love that. Oh, goodness. Come on, Apple TV Plus, you got Cha Cha Real Smooth, which sees a bar mitzvah party host. Strike up a unique relationship with a young woman and her teenage daughter. I watched the trailer because that's a vague write-up. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's the tone? It's very Coda-esque, I would say. Well, it's kind of lighthearted comedy, bit of fun in there, yeah. um, bit irreverent reverent in that way. Probably won't best picture again <laughs> for Apple. Who knows? We'll see. Paramount Plus. I'm excited for this one. Jerry and Marge go large. Which sees Brian Cranston and Annette Benning as a couple who discover a mathematical loophole in the Massachusetts lottery and begin to earn big, based on a true story. That's on Apple? That's coming to Paramount Param- Plus. Oh my
0: God, Paramount! I know,
1: to- Paramount's doing something. Oh my
0: God. When's that Uber one coming out, I wonder?
1: Oh, Joseph Jessica 11? Yeah. Isn't that not out already?
0: It might be. I haven't. Yeah, I only saw the trailer for it. Oh. Uh, yeah.
1: I feel like that's probably out. Is that a movie or a show? I hope no, it's a sure. movie. Ah. Oh. <laughs> but I'm excited for that one I saw the trailer it looks fun mm. it looks really fun I love those sort of well much much like the Uber one like capitalistic things of our characters earning big and from humble beginnings mm. I like that stuff so it's going to be fun we always love Brian Cranston on the show you've also got Anchorman 2 The Wolf of Wall Street and Detroit also coming to Paramount Plus now before we get into cinemas I wanted to give a quick shout out to The Swallows of Kabul mm-hmm. now this is to this day my favourite film of 2020 we've talked about Baby Teeth The Father Kajillionaire mm-hmm. I mean, The Father that came out in like April 2021 so that was a pretty late 2020 release for yes. us but but nevertheless like fantastic films come out in that in that general period of time Swallows of couple is probably still my favourite of all of them and it is now available on Moby so y'all should get onto that shit Moby or is it Mubi oh, my, Mubi Moby I, I don't know yeah. M-U-B-I yeah, Mubi Mubi Seven Day Trial so I might jump on it just to rewatch this while it's like a bull. Now, coming to cinema, Z, we have Lightyear, which sees the titular toy, or in this case, a real-life space ranger, embark on an intergalactic journey with a group of ambitious recruits and his robot companion. You excited for this? Um, <laughs> that sound effect. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I really want to go see Maverick, to be honest. No, I don't know. Oh, oh so... you got to
1: watch Maverick, man.
0: So I think that might take the cake for me first um I know Lucinda would probably want to go see Leia. that's her favourite Toy Story character
1: oh well, so, I think it's a lot of people's favourite Toy Story character um <laughs> yeah it's probably honestly, mine as well to be honest honestly
0: I'd probably say I'm a, uh, I'm a sucker for the ensemble to be honest I, I do like Mr. Oh, Head yeah. and Ham <laughs> Ham's really funny they're all great characters um,
1: but I think the, like we talked about this on Toy Story just a few weeks ago yeah a Toy Story podcast so like part of the reason I think Buzz is such a special character is because He's like a toy who thinks he's a ranger and he's always like overreacting. Yeah. But like you don't get that in this version of the film because he is a real life space ranger. He's yeah. the real life Could inspiration be a bit of, fun of the sci-fi, Toy though.
0: Like we get to explore a little sure. bit more of the I remember there was an, a cartoon movie that came out. Um
1: Oh yeah 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 Once the, upon the a 2D time. Buzz yeah. films yeah. Which
0: I found quite entertaining.
1: Yeah um, no, no, a lot of people adore those films. So um yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's was a cool it called with... Star Command? Was that what it was called? I think it was a Star. Yeah. yeah, like with the the
0: he's he's kind of more an non- he's more in the background really. It's more about the yeah.
1: right, but there's other like rangers and everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, that would be on Disney Plus, wouldn't it? Yeah, surely give that a rewatch. Yeah. Oh, definitely. That's exciting. You've got the Kitchen Brigade, which is a follow up to the director's previous film Invisible, and sees a sous chef, Kathy, attempt to open her own restaurant. And when coming upon financial difficulties, she accepts a job at a shelter for young migrants instead. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Seems interesting enough. You've also got Alex Garland's Men, which finally opens wide. I think this, I guess it'll be on Thursday. It'll just be this Thursday. And finally, Palace Cinema's doing an encore screening for National Treasure on Friday the 17th of June. So if, you're, if you're interested in that, get onto it. There we go. Easy. is that all for this that week that is everything coming to cinemas and streaming it is time
0: for us to move into our 1940s for the countdown through the mm. decade retrospective number three our third <laughs> our third one of this Jake two films went up two yes. two heavyweights of the 40s
1: two heavyweights and it was extremely close the vote was 11 to 10 so one off so uh Fantasia lost the vote but you know what I'm actually perfectly okay with this because we basically did it Last year, with Pinocchio, mm-hmm. we basically covered that '40s Disney animation era, so I'm not too upset about this loss.
0: Yes, we're exploring the golden age of film noir, mm. with probably one of the most prominent examples of the time. Jake, what are we watching
1: next week in the showz? Watching Double Indemnity.
2: I kill Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honey I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. But always behind them, with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain, was Keys. The murder's never perfect; always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you, he'll have you shadowed, he'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his striped man's ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichsen Dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show, he's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet.
1: A Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arises the suspicion of his colleague, an insurance investigator. Yo. The fact that they have the word insurance three times in this write-up. <laughs> That's very intentional. Mm. That's a very intentional wink and nod log But line. why would you know that, Jake? Well, I haven't seen this film, so <laughs> I would not know that. <laughs> I Indeed. feel like... You've been onto it, mate. You're uh, you're already onto this film. Yeah, I've, I've already seen this film. Oh, good. Well, I haven't yet, so... Um, it's a rarity
0: that um, I've watched the film. Like, if it's a, like a film I have never watched before. before right. Before uh, next week on the show. But... You know that's that's to do with scheduling reasons.
2: Um,
1: yeah, well, we kind of tease that because you're flying out later this week. We're going to record this next episode very early. Yeah, so it's part of the reason I'm I'm leaving a couple of things out to talk about next week, just as a little more, little more meat to the bone, Zeke. Yeah, I'm very well. excited um to, to watch this film mm. or to talk about this film.
0: because um, <laughs> insurance <laughs> does play a big part in this. Co- um, yeah, from a, and yeah, it's obviously it. It's good that we're going to be discussing a little bit more of the nineteen forties noir. Obviously, mm. in our previous countdowns, we had Citizen Kane and Pinocchio, and and <laughs> Pinocchio
1: the true the true noir well, story. I, I yeah. wouldn't
0: even argue Citizen Kane is not even noir either. It's, I guess so. It's more drama. Um, it, it looks and,
1: a little more. But then you got the Third Man. That is like right there. I cannot yes. believe we still haven't done the Third Man. Yeah. Yet.
0: See, that's that is to me that's like pinnacle noir sort of yeah. stuff. Whereas. Kane was more, the importance about that was that was the emergence of Orson Welles as a film creator Mm. and and sort of the stylistic drama that he sort of more like just the start of that journey. And obviously something like A Touch of Evil was way more noir based, but that's a 50s film. So it's one of those things that it's really cool to be doing double idemnity. Oh God, I'm going to butcher it. Yeah, it's one one or the other. (laughs) uh, Yeah. quintessential uh, noir film so mm. we'll talk about that next week on the show thank you for joining us for the Cinema SciShow Podcast I was Zeke I was Jake we'll catch you next week with Double